0: And good morning, how's everybody doing? Awesome, my name's John, I am one of the pastors here at New Hope. I grew up in a white world. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, lived 10 years in Greensboro, North Carolina, and then back up to the very tip of Virginia. I grew up in a world where the, the majority of the people in my neighborhoods were white, and the majority of people in my schools were white, the majority of people of, in my churches were white, majority of people on my TV screens were white. The majority of authors that I read were white. Uh, the majority of musicians I listened to were, were white mu- musicians. I call this a monochromatic world, one color. That's what that means. That's the world I grew up in. I'm not here to hate on that. I'm not here to say that we were seeking that or anything, anything inherently wrong. So let me just put your minds at ease there. I'm just noting the reality in which I grew up. My, my upbringing, my parents were amazing. I'm so thankful for my upbringing, but my upbringing was far from diverse. It was monochromatic. And it limited me in many ways. I mean, I didn't realize it until even like in the last decade or so. It's kind of like if you ask a fish, how's the water today? The fish is like, what water? They don't know, right? You just, you live in it. And as I've kind of emerged out of it a little bit and gotten a little perspective, I see how, as beautiful as my upbringing is, it hampered me. And one of the ways in which it hampered me is until recently, I had no idea. I literally could not imagine how big and beautiful and diverse the church was created to be. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're uh, in, in a series uh, called 10 Questions. And we've assembled these questions, it's not an exhaustive list, there's ones beyond this, but we feel like these 10 questions can serve as a barrier to faith in Jesus. Whether you're checking it out for the first time, whether you're thinking about exiting for whatever reason, or whether you're a faithful follower, these are hard questions, they're difficult questions, and we want to be a church that talks about these questions. Last week, we kind of framed the really overarching question, is the world better off without Christianity. And you can go and and check that out online. It was kind of an intro message because it's a massive question. And so if you haven't heard that, go check it out online. We're also doing a podcast along with the series called Cutting Room Floor. So every week, I think Tuesday, whoever's speaking is going to sit down and do a podcast you can actually contribute that. So if, you're, if I'm talking throughout the message today and there's going to be things that you disagree on and I invite that, that's awesome. We're a diverse community. Send your questions to questions at newhopepdx.org. And I will do my best to honestly address those questions in the podcast. I can't promise we'll get all of them because we don't know how many we'll get. Uh, But I will do my best. We're not looking to evade any questions. So that's how you can interact with the message. We've also uh, offered you some resources uh, today. And so uh, one is a book called Confronting Christianity by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. You guys, first service actually bought out all the copies last week. So second service was angry at you. You know, they're just like, uh, first service people. So we bought uh, a bunch more. There's also a QR code. Some of you listen. Some of you use Kindle or, or whatever reading device. You can scan the QR code or you can buy the book. But this is our big read. A couple times a year we like to have a book that we challenge you all to read. I deeply, deeply believe that what we read forms us as followers of Jesus. So I want to challenge you as your pastor, if you consider me that, to read this book. It will deepen your experience. And then each week, if you go online, or I think we're putting this on social media as well, for each particular question, we give recommended resources. And these could be podcasts. I recommended two podcasts this week. It could be YouTube videos. It could be other books if you want to keep reading. So if there's a particular question that you're wrestling with, and you're like, I'm excited to learn more, or I don't feel like they address that adequately, there's ample resources to keep uh, going after Jesus and going after these questions. So there you go. Our question today, and it's uh, if you're following along the book, I think it's question two. I think the way she frames it is, does Christianity crush diversity? I thought that was like a little harsh. So I said, does Christianity oppose diversity? That's the question we're going after today. I would, uh, I would say, uh, well, let me just read how she frames why we're talking about this. This is how she frames it. For many, the idea that Christianity is a white Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism stands as a major ethical barrier to considering Christ. We celebrate diversity and lament the ways religion has been used by Westerners to destroy indigenous cultures. So she's framing it up this way. I would say it's simply this. The barrier for some people, and this may not be for you, but for many people, trust me on this, and I think you probably know these people, they can't approach Jesus or Christianity because they think Christianity is a White man's religion, that's the idea. That's the barrier we're going at today. We'll deal with the man part later in the series, so ladies and others that wrestle that, just like put a pin in that, Right? we'll come back to that. We're dealing with, with the, the white part of it today. Here's another way of approaching it. Uh, Claude, I don't know how to pronounce this man's last name, he's a writer, author, A T C H O. Acho, acho. He believes there's three primary reasons why this barrier exists, and you can agree or disagree, but I thought these were helpful for me. He said, one, the history of oppression. Uh, a chattel slavery, going back to Jim Crow era, not all, and many Christians rose up and said no, but some Christians did use the Bible to, to go along with those things, and I think it's evil and heinous, and we'll talk later in the series about the slavery question, but that's one reason. Two, he, he, this is his term, he thinks Jesus has been whitewashed. And he means this. He means that Jesus is a Middle Eastern man. I think we all know that. He didn't have white skin. A lot of times, remember what I brought up? If you were here for Easter, I brought up all my Jesus figurines. Some of you remember that? They're all just really white. It looks like surfer California Jesus with blue eyes and blonde hair. It's not Jesus. It's just not. We just know that factually. So the fact that we've done that to Jesus is a barrier to people. And then finally, this is the way he says it. He says there's lingering apathy towards racial justice in the church. Now, I don't wanna get into CRT and all these deep things. We can talk in the podcast if you wanna send questions about that. He's just saying there's this general from the outside looking in of people who are having this very real conversation about race in our country, that followers of Jesus and churches are like, eh. Like, I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna have that. So he said the combination, maybe one of these things, maybe all of them together, leads people to think, is Christianity only for white people? Or, another way to frame it, If I care deeply about diversity, can I still follow Jesus? And that's what we're going after today. How's everybody feeling? Everybody's like all tense. We're talking about race in church. Oh, some people are excited. All right. Thank you. Keep clapping. Keep clapping. Um, So we're going to read our scripture passage today. We'll be in a lot of scripture. So um, bring your Bibles. Um, Everybody has a phone probably in their pocket. You got a computer in your pocket. So there's tons of free Bible apps. We'll be rolling through Scripture today and bouncing around, so it's just good for us as followers to, to acclimate ourselves to the Scriptures, and maybe one will grab you and you'll want to go back to it later, so get ready. I'm just preparing you, uh, but our public reading today is Revelation 5, 6 through 10. Um, Portia is going to come and read it, and we do this every week. Let me just explain this. We, at the end, uh, she says, this is the word of the Lord, and then you say, So some of you are like, why are we doing this? Well, followers of Jesus all over the world. If you travel, they do this all over the world. And here's why it's important to me. Because God's word is a gift, and God's word's not my word, or any of the other teachers, it's not your word. It's a gift. It's from God. And so when it's read in our presence, it has a power in and of ourselves. And so some of you are like, I can't remember what to say. I kind of freeze up when the moment comes. Think this way. Maybe this will help. When somebody gives you a gift, you say, thank you. So when somebody's like giving you the gift of scripture, just say, what's that? Well, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. All right, does that make sense? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the power of your word, for the power of your people gathered together. Thank you that we're a church. We're just going to have awkward, hard conversations. We're going to do it with kindness and grace, realizing everybody sees things differently, but we all are held together by King Jesus, and that's the most important thing about us. So it's safe. It's safe. And so, God, help us, lead us, and guide us. Help your word come alive and inflame within your hearts. And I pray your Holy Spirit would go wild in this room this morning, just shaping us and morphing us more into the image of your son, Jesus, for your glory and for the sake of the world. And all God's people said? I think the mic.
1: Sorry. <laughs> Chapter 5. Tijitangirafa verse 6. Tijigumirafa verse 10. Jino pakati pechi garo chooshe ne jwisikwa jwipenyu jina. Ne pakati pavakuru. Ndakao nagwayana rimire rakaita se kaoraewa. Rine nyanga nomwena ne maziso manomwe. Iri minomwe yamwari yakatu mirwa ya, mwari, ya kunika yose. Kwaena ria, raka yenda, rikandotora buku muruoko rweruji rueruji, rouia akange agere, Pachigaro Choshe. zvino Jino kuzoti kwaeria ratora buku ria, jisikwa jipenyu jina, na vakuru vana, makumi maviri nevana waka pamberi pambiri Mumene mume aine guitare nendiro dze zaka dzakagaza dzizere rusenzi iri mina mato ye rucha vachiti ndimi makafanira kuti mutore buku no kwatura jisimbiso jaro nokuti makabaiwa makatengera muari, vanu nero Parenu, vanu vemarudzi ose Neven Dimi Zose Vanu Remadzinza Ose nevenyika Zose. Makavaita Rudzgurvas Shumiri Vanoshumiramariw Uye Vakazotonga Pasipose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Portia. We are gonna Jam through some scripture here, and here's my goal. I want to show you from beginning to end that God's redemptive plan, and we'll we'll end up in the scripture that Portia just talked about. From beginning to end, God's redemptive plan is super diverse. Are you guys ready? I mean, we're gonna roll. I don't know if you you don't look ready. We're gonna we're gonna do this. All right. So here we go. We're gonna start all the way back in Genesis 12. And God calls forth Abraham and Sarah, and out of them will birth a family that births a nation, that births a king, that births the kingdom of God. That's what we're following. That's the story of Scripture, summarized in one line. So it goes all the way back to Genesis 12. For nerds out there, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. The covenant, the promise that God makes Abraham. So let's go to it. Here we go. Uh, Genesis 12:1 through 3. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth. Did you see that? From the very beginning, this isn't like Abraham is just you and your little people. That's the plan. No, he's going to burst something out of them, but from the very beginning in God's heart, the redemptive plan is super diverse. All right, here we go. And then we have Abraham, and then we have Isaac, and then we have Jacob. And then Jacob has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Are we following? And then Reuben commits a sin. His birthright is stripped. But Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the birthright is split between the two of them. So they become two of the patriarchs, Ephraim and Manasseh. But they're sons of Joseph. Their mother is Azanath, an Egyptian, an African. Two of the Jewish patriarchs are half African, are we following that? This is just factual stuff. So from the very beginning, this was God's plan. We see that, 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 uh, that Jacob understood this because when, when, when Manasseh and Ephraim come to them and he blesses them and bequeaths on them the birthright and splits Reuben's birthright, he says to them, this is fulfilling God's promise to make a nation that will be a community of nations, we go to Exodus twelve thirty eight. after all those hundreds of years of enslavement the Israelites are set free and Moses leading them out and it says this that the Israelites left with a mixed multitude of people so it wasn't just the Israelites already the two African patriarchs have, have mixed it up but there's others that go with them so there's this mixed multitude so the, from the very beginning God's redemptive plan is super diverse all right let's fast forward to the Davidic king king David They thought he might be the one. He wasn't the one, but they thought he might be the one. God makes his own covenant with David called the Davidic covenant, that one day from your line, David, even though you couldn't keep it together, one day from your line will come the king of kings. So we're watching that. And this king of kings will bring this plan to fruition. Uh, Esau Macaulay is a New Testament scholar. He he notes in, in Psalm 72, David quotes the Abrahamic covenant. So he understands his connection to that. But then he, he expands it. He says in 72, 17b, then all nations will be blessed through him. All nations, this Davidic king. Fast forward now to the gospel writers and enter Jesus as that Davidic king, clearly claiming to be the Davidic king that will bring this plan to fruition. Listen, look at Matthew 1.1. You can't be more clear than this. This is the genealogy of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham like here he is he's going all the way back to genesis 12 and pulling forth the promise of the abraham and coming all the way to david who expanded that promise and pulling it forth and he is going to bring it to bear are we following here's what paul says this gets kind of nerdy in theology world but i love how scripture works together and as we're reading, this is a good uh, kind of cha- change in your mind. As we are reading, a lot of times in your translations, it says Gentiles, 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 Gentiles. The word Gentile in the Greek isn't Gentile. It, it's, it's ethnos, which we get our word ethnicis, ethnicity from or, or, or ethnic. It just means nations. So sometimes you can even scratch it out and just put nations because we get it a certain way of thinking. All right, so here we go. This is what, this is what Paul says. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you nations with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you nations. Let all the peoples extol him. And again... He's just saying again, again, again. Isaiah says the root of Jesse, David's dad, will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the nations will hope. Now, did Jesus live this out? Yes. His first road trip with his youth group, he's got this teenage group of disciples. His first road trip is to Samaria, the group ethnically that the Jews Definitely hated. And then he comes back later and tells maybe his most famous story, and the hero of the story is the good Samaritan. Jesus sees this, and then at the end, he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. He told them when his spirit comes upon them to share the gospel, and he's going to start small and then go out in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the Davidic king that's saying, yes, I'm here to bring this to fruition, and God's redemptive plan from beginning to end is super diverse. Let's go to Pentecost now. Jesus tells his disciples, go and wait for me. My spirit will come, and you'll do greater things than I ever did. When the spirit falls with power, when we were in Israel, we were in the room that they think had happened. Talk about exciting. When it falls with power, they begin to preach, and they begin to preach in many languages. And this super diverse group is there hearing the gospel and receiving it. People from modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, and Italy were right there. And then, boom, they go out. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, there is, there is no longer any Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. He writes to the church at Ephesus, in Jesus, the dividing wall that separated the Jews from the other nations has been torn down forever. Amen? We also know in, the early, in early Christianity, there were three major centers of Christianity. Uh, there was Rome, which we probably, most of us knew that, Antioch, and then Alexandria. Where do you think Alexandria is? Africa. It was actually the cultural center of Africa. So we we have this misnomer that people of color entered the story way later on. I'm trying to show you this is not the case. Not only biblically, but practically. So here's a couple more examples of that. At Pentecost, we're told there was people from Egypt and Libya there. Of course they went back with the message. The man who carried Jesus' cross was Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in Libya, right near modern-day Libya. We know, we think that he became a follower of Jesus because Mark references his sons, Rufus, that's an unfortunate name, and Alexander. And when gospel writers reference names, that means they're in the community of Jesus' followers. He's like, go talk to Rufus and Alexander if you don't believe about Simon of Cyrene. So did he, were they there that day? Did he share the gospel with them? Did he go back to Libya and share the gospel? Maybe all of that, but right there, the man carrying Jesus across was an African man. We know that Ethiopia was widely evangelized by the 4th century, the Sudan by the 6th century. Then go to Acts 8. You can follow along here. Just look at these. Go back to these passages. Philip encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who oversaw the treasury of Queen Cadence from Ethiopia. You can't get any higher than that. He is riding along, and he's reading Isaiah 53, which was a key prophetic text of the early Christians. So then you're thinking, has the gospel already reached them by this time? And he's like, they're already reading it and wrestling? I don't know. I think it's likely. He asks Philip to explain. Philip explains about the Davidic king and Jesus and his death and resurrection. The man is dunked and baptized right there, filled with the Holy Spirit, and heads back at the highest echelons of Ethiopian government. We know Ethiopia became one of the first fully, like almost fully Christian nations. They considered themselves a Christian nation half a century before Rome did. So this idea that it was, everything was added late to the story is simply not true. Our brothers and sisters of color were right there at the very, very beginning. We look at the early church followers, uh, Tertullian, who's ironically called the father of Western theology, even though he's from Africa. He's from uh, Tunisia. Uh, origins from Alexandria. Uh, our most famous theologian maybe in the entire history of the church is Augusta of Hippo, which is in North Africa. Late scholar, uh, historian Thomas Oden says it this says it this way. If we cut Africa out of the Bible and Christian memory, uh, you have misplaced many of the pivotal scenes of salvation history. It is the story of the children of Abraham in Africa, Joseph in Africa, Moses in Africa, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Africa, and shortly after, Mark, and uh, I don't know how to pronounce those names, and Augustine in Africa. All, these, all these lives coincide in this continent of Africa. The idea we can look at biblically, the biblical story from the very beginning, says that we're meant to be diverse. That was God's plan all the way up to the end, and we see in actuality it came into existence. All right, let's go to the passage that Portia read. All the way at the end, Revelation, we're not going to, we'll do a series on Revelation sometime, just calm down, all right? It's, it's, it's exciting, but we're not going to get all into the details here. Just stay, stay centered. on what It's a throne room scene, and that's often. Uh, John, the veil is pulled back. That's how Revelation is happening. He, he's seeing. It's an apocalypse, the unveiling. That's what that word means. It's pulled back, and he can see not only in the future, but right then what's happening. And this, this is happening right now. So he sees this throne room scene, and there's the Lamb of God, Jesus, the only one who can open the scrolls, the only one who can bring this this redemptive plan of diversity to fruition, he emerges and he comes forth and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, I don't even know who those people are, but they're singing and they're praising, they're bowing down. And they say this, because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This line, if you're a highlighter in your Bible or you want to highlight, highlight this line, people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That is repeated, that exact line, kind of, they move some of the words around seven times in the book of Revelation. My, my professor says that line is, is the line that is used for the salvation history of God's people more than any other line. That line right there. Again, the, the, the diversity is not a surprise, it's been there the whole time. If you still don't believe me, here's my last burst from the Scriptures. Like, if you're like, I'm still not there. Like, I'm just giving you a smidgen of the Scriptures. All right, so they're going to come up. I'm going to read through them quickly. Um, You can always go to my notes. I think I I have manuscripts, so the notes are provided if you want to go to some of these Scriptures. But here's a brief survey of this idea being embedded throughout Scripture that all the peoples of the earth would know. You see all the places that's mentioned. All nations, ends of the earth, 22 times in the Psalms. All nations will stream to the Lord's temple, Isaiah. I will make you a light for the nations. My salvation will reach the ends of the earth. All nations will come to the Lord. I will take you out of all nations. All nations will bear my name. Nations from every shore will worship God. All nations will fill God's house. Many nations will become my people. These are different prophets. God's name will be great among the nations. Then Luke, good news that will cause... Great joy for some people. No, all people. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. God accepts people from every nation who fear him. The light for the Gentiles, the salvation to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Messiah. And then finally, back to Revelation, one of the final glimpses we get of what's coming, of what we're living into. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The first century readers, all of their gods, plural, were focused on one people group or one ethnic group. All of them. This would have blown their mind. They didn't understand it. They're like, what, a God for all people? And that's God's plan from the very beginning, not a monochromatic world but a beautiful, colorful world. My wife and I, as many of you know, uh, were at Israel and I'll be sharing tons of stories. I mean, we're still unpacking it and people are like, how was it? And such a difficult question to answer because there's so much that went into that trip and things that we're still unpacking. But somebody asked my wife that recently and I'll I'll quote her because I thought she gave a great answer and she, she and I had talked about this a little bit. But there's many times that we're in Galilee, or particularly in the city of Jerusalem, and looking around the great diversity. And here we are, you know, t- two white people from Portland over there, and we're, we're at the temple, and we're looking around. And there was a deep sense of fulfillment. There's a deep sense of like we're coming back to the place that it began, and we're we're one of many people groups that are doing this. And my wife, somebody said, "How was it?" And she pondered, and she said, "Being in Jerusalem felt like coming home again." I thought that was really beautiful. Like, yes, we've been, this, this plan from the very beginning, we're beginning to taste it. We're beginning to see it. All right, how, how are we doing? Everybody good? All right, that's the Bible part. Now, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Is Christianity opposed to diversity? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I mean, how it's meant to be? No, did you just see what we talked about? Absolutely no. Heck no. This is the way I would say it. Through Jesus, God has birthed the most diverse family on the face of the earth. Through Jesus, that's really important, God has birthed the most diverse family on the entire face of the earth. This is the way Rebecca says it in her book. I I love it. She kind of brings it all together. And I would say, you know, Christianity, if you're like, is it opposed to diversity? Again, remember last week, just because some Christians may be, don't let them represent you know that, They're not representing. That's not true. Christianity is not opposed to diversity. Christianity is the embodiment of diversity. She says it this way. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is the most ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, and racially diverse belief system in all of history. The idea that Christianity is diversity-resistant white Western religion of privilege is utterly irreconcilable with the New Testament. So if you care about diversity, don't Dismiss Christianity. I've heard this, and I want to address this, and maybe this will be, be tender for some of you that maybe have said this before. But I hear people say this is where, as we get into these racial conversations that are tender and all are hard, and we need to take very seriously and prayerfully. I hear people say, well, you know, the gospel just makes us colorblind. Have you heard that? The gospel just makes us colorblind. Uh, no. That's <laughs> a really horrible theology, and I just want to say this, and don't feel shame if you've said that before. Somebody told you that and you passed around, let's quit passing that on. That's not what I'm saying. It's not a flattening. God's redemptive plan is not monochromatic at all. I'm actually colorblind, and, and, and it's, it's a disability. You know, it's not, I don't think it's like a, a hardcore disability, but it is a disability. It's not ideal. I'm red, green, colorblind. Any other red, green, colorblind people that want to admit? I think we have a a thing that's gonna come up here. I can't see anything there. Can you guys see? Yeah, like so, there you go, right? That's not cool, I don't like that. Like one day they have these new glasses, I've seen these videos that you can put them on now and you can see color. I've never seen those colors in my life, in all of my life. And I've seen people fall on their knees weeping because what they're seeing they've never seen before. I think I'm just gonna wait to heaven. But I don't know, if somebody has his glasses, I'll give it a go. <laughs> it's not a cool thing, like right? It's, that's not God's plan, that's not, God's plan is to take all of us, black, brown, yellow, red, whatever color, white, and say, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Yeah. And we're bringing you all together in Jesus and you be fully you. I, uh, I don't know if this, this illustration will help, but I found this TV, we got, we got like a six-year-old TV, which I think is like dinosaur age, we need to upgrade, amen? You guys tell my wife that? Uh, it's the new Samsung TV, the QLED, uses quantum dot technology to display one billion colors. One billion colors. That's cool, it costs $1,500, but that's really cool. Who would wanna go back to, to this thing? We got another TV. Who wants that? Right? And so when I see people in the church being like, yeah, I'll go for that, I'm like, what? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And we need to begin to embrace our beautiful diversity that every shape and size and Enneagram number and personality type, and there's Catholic and Orthodox and Protestant and Evangelical and Pentecostal and Charismatics, and we're a mishmash, and we're all thrown in there, red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in His sight. Jesus loves all the children of the world. That's the gospel. Some encouragement for you, and this has been a learning I've been on because of my monochromatic white world upbringing, that I've been blinded to this. And it's such a beautiful story we have to tell more, so I want to touch on it. This plan, God's plan, is being fulfilled in our lifetime, in our midst, and a lot of times we don't see it. Uh, South Korea now sends the second most missionaries around the world. The Iranian church is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. In 1979, there were only 500 followers of Jesus. Now there's hundreds of thousands. (laughs) The Chinese church, you wanna hear about that? Maybe you've heard some about that. The the gospel didn't even really arrive in China until the eighth century. Not that there weren't followers of Jesus, we don't know of them, there wasn't many. Eighth century. Now the Christian population in, in China, you ready for this? 68 million people. By the year 2050, China will be, uh, have more Christians than the U.S. and will be majority Christian nation. I mean, that's unbelievable. Christianity, even though we don't feel this in the West, continues to grow. It's been argued Christianity is growing more rapidly now than ever at any point in the history of the world. It's just growing more down south. Uh, the, number one, the number one place in the world uh, uh, the, uh, with the majority of Christians is Africa and then Latin America second. We don't even rank in those top areas. I I mentioned this last week in, I think the second service, maybe you didn't hear it, but Africa has 37,825 new Christ followers every day for the last 20 years. Latin America has 16,988 every day for the last 20 years. If you put all the data together, the average Christ follower in the world is a woman who doesn't speak English, who is around 30 years of age, who is lower middle class, and lives in a city. That's the average follower of Jesus today. And that doesn't mean that she's better than anybody else, I'm just trying to get the diversity thing. In America, the number one most Christianized demographic is black women. we're, We're this beautiful conglomeration of diversity. I think in our own story, uh, and, and those of you who, who, who you know, came from the Mount Scott, who are now fully part of our church, I think you know some of the story, but New Hopers, you definitely know this, this story. I, I think the largest church right now in Portland is the church we sold our building to, Our Lady LeVang, right up the road. This is in Portland, right up the road. They do all of their masses. They used to do 12 masses. They have to do less now because they got a big building it's, that's beautiful. Just stand there sometime and watch the, the traffic. Maybe you've seen it. 5,000 Vietnamese followers of Jesus gathering to worship every day. In Vietnamese, like five miles from here, people. Right? This, is, this is so beautiful. Stephen Carter's a Yale law professor. I don't know where he is in his faith, but he's a public intellectual, and he, he's quoted all the time. He says it's easy uh, to attack Christianity as a white man's religion. But he said the the opponents uh, get stymied increasingly when they look at the data and see the unparalleled diversity of the way of Jesus, that they're literally speechless. And this is his quote. He says, he's talking to people who are mocking Christianity. He says, when you're mocking Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are. You're mocking literally the most diverse family on the face of the earth. I hope this encourages you. There's two ways I want to challenge us as we, uh, how do we practice this? We can talk all day, but if we're not practicing it, we're kind of wasting our time. Here's two practices I want us to think about. Followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, in light of all this, God's plan, the biblical testimony, what's going on through the spirit of God around the world, followers of Jesus should seek and celebrate diversity. Like, I, I, let, me, let me give, like, this is a criticism from someone who's a Christian, uh, Kristen Dumais is a Christian, she's a historian. She says it like this, and we need, to, we need to, don't get defensive, we need to let this enter in. She says, white evangelicals are more opposed to immigration reform, have more negative views of immigrants than any other religious demographic. Two thirds uh, support the border wall. 68% uh, of white evangelical Protestants, more than any other demographic, do not think that the United States has a responsibility to accept refugees. And more than half of the white evangelical Protestants think a majority non-white U.S. population would be a negative development. Now, I don't, don't get distracted with immigration and border walls. Please don't send me those emails. I'm just, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. We could have differences of opinion on immigration and border laws. I know it's complex. Listen to the heart of what she's saying. Listen to the heart of what people are saying. They see the biblical testimony. They see the Spirit of God doing things across the world, that are astounding in the name of Jesus, and they see a very small group of us in the United States saying, yeah, yeah. I want to challenge you as your pastor. Maybe there's no issues there with you. Maybe you're good there. I want to challenge you to get on your knees before the Lord and do some work and think about it. That's my challenge. Fair enough? No border wall emails or immigration emails, all right? So I just, I don't... I, I share a little bit of my, my journey and just being vulnerable growing up in a very monochromatic white world. Uh, in Madison, we, we bought our second home and we did due diligence. We had uh, two g- girls at that time and they were young and Eden's about to go into kindergarten. So one of the things you do when you look at houses, you look at what school district and you want the best for your kids, right? You want the top. And we, uh, we, we, were, we were happy with it. We bought our house, we loved the house. And then we had this just really tough night when we realized that the listing in the school district that was attached to the house we bought was wrong. It was wrong. And we were attached to the school district and the school that had one of the worst rankings in the entire city. And it was a dark night of the soul. You know, I was just kind of like, one, did I mess up? But here's the deal. My wife's a teacher and she knows this. Those rankings are kind of like, (laughs) we don't really do... When we really got in and met the principal and the teachers, they're amazing. But here's the deal. The number one demographic was Hispanic, the number two was black, and the third was white. And we wrestled people growing up in a white world with that. Do we want that? And praise God, praise God that we said yes to that. It's one of the greatest gifts that we've given to Eden and Jubilee, that there have been these dual language programs, they're fluent in Spanish, and they continue to be the minority in the groups they hang out with. That's gonna make them so much more vivacious and beautiful and powerful women of God for the church. Amen? And that's my own journey. You don't have to agree with that, but I just want you to know that we wrestle with these things and we, we wrestle with how we're, we're, we grow up and how we're, so here's what I want you to do. So if you're like me, you may not be like there's People of color here today, of course you're not like me in that regard, but maybe you're like me in that you lived in a very monochromatic world. Get away from the shame and the guilt, and that's, that's not helpful, right? Here's what I wanna challenge you with. Begin to seek diversity. Look at your tables, look at at who you're hanging out with and seek relationships. It's not easy. Uh, I've, I've, over the last couple of years, and you guys have heard me preach on racial justice. We we, we have a team that's going after that. We're trying to do it lovingly and spirit-driven and prayerfully, and I think the team's doing an amazing job, our beloved community team. But from the get-go, when all that stuff broke with George Floyd and stuff like that a couple years ago, I said, I need friends. I need to know people of color. I need not just know them so I can invite them to speak and feel good. I need to be friends with them. So I brought, uh, I began a friendship with Herman Green, Herman and Nike Green from from ALC up in North Portland. And I team taught with them about a year and a half ago here on the stage. And and I just want you to know, and I'm just letting you into your pastor's life, like it, it hasn't just come and gone for me. Herman's my friend, he's my partner, he's my brother. And every single month we have coffee, or breakfast or lunch, because I gotta learn. And I'm learning from him, yeah, I give him very little. He's teaching me. Our most recent coffee, he said, come come on up to the North Portland, I want, you to, I want you to come have a cup of coffee at the first black-owned coffee shop in North Portland. I got to meet the woman who had been incarcerated, and she's got her life together, and she is just a spitfire and amazing. How cool is that? You know, I'm growing and developing, and God's being gracious to me and forming me into amneses a, beyond my monochromatic world and becomes a follower of Christ that aligns with the story. So I don't know what that looks like for you. Seek those relationships out. Don't just do it one, let's seek friendships out. Begin to read. What we read is so important. And I realized a couple of years ago that almost all that I was reading, especially theologically, was white men doesn't mean there's a lot of brilliant white men. It's great, I continue to read them. But now in sermon series, in my reading every year, I try to make sure I have black voices and Hispanic voices and Asian voices, because they help me. They help me see the world and Jesus in a different way. If you're able to, as we're coming out of these horrible COVID years, travel. We just had two meetings last week about a trip to Mexico for our students and a trip to open arms in Africa for everyone. Travel, 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 especially if you're young. Parents, get your kids out there. It'll be the best money you ever spend. I've worshiped and preached the gospel in Romania and have good Roma friends, formerly called Gypsy friends, and beautiful people. I've preached and worshiped in Kenya. I've preached and worshiped in, in the Amazon jungle in Peru. I did a funeral in, in the Amazon jungle in Peru. Are you kidding me? I preached and worshiped in Chiapas, Mexico, which is about as south as you can get. It was one of my first gigs when I was a youth pastor. And I got done, and they gave me this beautiful handmade Bible and a knife that was like this long, which was so cool. I've never gotten that again. But like, people come into my office and are like, what is that? I'm like, it's a, it's a preaching gift. You know, that's how I got paid that day. You know, kind of deal. We, When we were recently in, in, uh, in Israel, we hung on and got to know Palestinian Christians. There's tens of thousands of them faithfully following the Lord, and have been for hundreds of years. That complicates the issue a little bit. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. The New Testament is one of the most emphatically anti-racist texts ever written, and the way of Jesus is emphatically so. And we need, as followers of Jesus, to press into that and do our own work. Uh, I want to quote Martin Luther King Jr., who was a pastor deeply profound theologian, brilliant man, he says this, I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the most shameful tragedies, that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of our most segregated hours. Any church that stands against integration and has a segregated body is standing against the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ, can I get an amen? Finally, um, we, need to, we need to pray. How do we switch our heart? How do we, uh, how do we fire our imagination so we see differently? We pray. And I want to challenge you to begin to pray for your brothers and sisters around the world. You might say, John, where do I begin? Great question. You begin with this resource called Operation World. I remember as a young kid, I used to get the book every year they would update it. And I'd, I'd pray through it with my family. I wanted to be a missionary at like age eight. So I'd like pray through this book. And, and now they have a website, and now they have a super cool app. It's about as easy as can be. And every day they highlight a country. And they show it where the country is in the world, which most Americans need a lot of ge- geography help. So there's that, right? So you get to learn where it's at, and they give an update on the church and what's going on there, and then specific ways you can pray for that country. I promise you, if you begin to pray and pray with your family, your imagination will be fired. So we're going to actually do that here this morning just for, for like two minutes. We're going to pray together in the room. And I was like, what country do we choose? And, uh, and I chose uh, Iraq. And I think it's a country that was, has woven into the journey of our country for many years and maybe it's faded from memory. But I wanted to give you kind of the update from Operation World and give space in the room to pray. Are We good with that? All right, in uh, Iraq's in Asia, 41 million people, 38% under the age of 15, 95% Muslim, 1.6% Christian. Uh, 60% of the country has not been reached with the gospel. But Iraq, one of the reasons I chose this is because it's one of the oldest continuous Christian communities in the world, uh, churches that begin before the founding of Islam. And these communities are, in our lifetime, slowly being stamped out through persecution. It's it's one of the most persecuted uh, Christian groups in the world. Uh, Some some hopeful things uh, the emergence of of Iraqi Arab evangelicals are now over 50,000 of them. Many of them have come from Muslim backgrounds and even extremist backgrounds to faith in Jesus. How cool is that? They encounter Christ through, through evangelical witness, gospel radio, and some, many, through dreams and visions of Jesus himself. That's amazing. Pray for the deep divisions that run through the Iraqi society, Kurds versus Arabs, Shiites versus Sunnis, uh, secular politicians against Islamic groups. And pray for these Christian minority pastors that literally are giving their lives to lead the church i'm going to go home and watch basketball today that's what i'm going to do and take a nap they're literally risking their lives for the sake of the gospel and here's another cool story when these pastors go down and, and many of them are male they're seeing their wives step up and take over the churches think of those women as we pray this morning so tons of ways we can pray i'm going to let the spirit of god lead us And because I think we need to do more silence in church, we're just going to be quiet. There's going to be no background music here. I'm just going to give you like one to two minutes just to pray however you're led uh, for Iraq, and then I'll close this. All right? Let's do it. I also want to uh, just invite you to pray for our Spanish-speaking congregation and Pastor Omar, who's part of our staff, uh, who uh, so faithfully and wisely and lovingly leads uh, those folks. They are part of our church, and, uh, and many of them only understand Spanish, so they come to a separate service, and we want to serve them in that way. But they meet every, every Sunday at 2 o'clock. You can always join them. They would love that, uh, but they're very much part of our church. So let's pray for Pastor Omar and our Spanish-speaking congregation. Amen. As we come to the table, I want to make this point, and it's, it's the last point, but maybe it's the most important. Uh, becoming unified in our diversity as the plan is in Scripture and is happening in front of our eyes is only possible through King Jesus. People who don't follow Jesus with all due respect, good luck finding anything that can bring us together anymore. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord and our King and our very identity So even though we are diverse in this room on what we believe and how much money we make and where we come from and the color of our skin, we come together to the table every week to illustrate where we're held together, a bond that will never be broken. Going back to Revelation 5, the passage continues. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. And as we come uh, to, to the table today, I want us to spur our imaginations to that day one day where we will, without a shadow of a doubt, gather with our brothers and sisters from every tribe and language and nation and people all over the world at the wedding feast of the Lamb. What a day that will be. And we live into that right now. Let this table also be a catalyst that we can begin to live like that the scriptures tell us on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and, after he given thanks, he broke it. He said, "This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." The same way, he took the cup and he said, "This cup is the sign of the new covenant, which is given in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me." You may go ahead and take the elements, and as you take and ponder and pray, a video is going to come up, uh, which will have followers of Jesus from all over the world in their languages a singing amazing grace, and then we might get a chance to join them.